0: Welcome to the Friday Golf Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. I'm back from vocal rest, feeling pretty good. So shout out penicillin and shout out to Andy for doing the intro to the last episode. Today's episode is the second installment of our great courses series. But if you're starting here, that's fine. You don't have to listen to these in any particular order. They're basically deep dives into some of the best and most influential golf courses in history. The first one was on the old course at St. Andrews, and this second episode will be all about National Golf Links of America. This course was designed by Charles Blair MacDonald during the first decade of the 20th century, and it opened in 1911. Many would consider it the first truly great American golf course. There are a couple of other options for that title, but this is really where American golf architecture came into its own, and it was a site of some incredible innovations in both design and agronomy. My guest for this episode is Chris Millard. Chris is the co-author, along with Anthony Edgeworth of a history of NGLA that was published in 2016. Chris has been a friend of Friday Golf behind the scenes for a few years now, and I'm very excited to have him on the podcast for the first time today. Now, if you like this kind of content, I think you would love Club TFE, our membership program. Club TFE offers a number of benefits like early access to Friday Golf events and an annual member gift. But the core of the offering is exclusive content. Our weekly course profiles are basically deep dives, just like this, into noteworthy golf courses. So if you enjoy this episode, I can just about guarantee that you would enjoy the stuff we're publishing on our member site. Go to thefriedegg.com membership and get Club TFE for yourself or for someone else who loves golf. All right, before we get into my conversation with Chris Millard about National Golf Links of America, a quick word about our sponsor for this episode, Club Champion. Club Champion helps golfers of any skill level play better golf through custom-fitted and custom-built equipment. They have extensively trained master fitters who provide an in-depth, data-driven, tour-level fitting process, and these master fitters have access to 50,000 hittable head and shaft combos, as well as 60-plus brands. This is truly a brand-agnostic fitting. You'll go with whatever works for you. doesn't matter what the brand is. These fitters also use industry-leading technology like TrackMan and Sam PuttLab to really dial you in, and when they build the clubs, they build to the tightest tolerances in the industry. Club Champions fittings produce real results for Every level of player, you don't have to be a scratch player to get some benefits from this process. I've gone through club champion fittings myself. I am not an elite golfer, and I've gotten really good results from them. And I've also learned a lot about my golf swing, about what kind of equipment I should be using. So it has really helped inform my future equipment purchases, right? I I, I waste a lot less time and money buying stuff that's not going to be suitable for me because of what I learned from Club Champion. So, Fried Egg listeners, this is the deal that Club Champion is offering for the holiday season. Right now, you can use the code FriedEgg to get a $100 full bag Club Champion fitting, or for a fitting that is less than the full bag, you can get 50% off the cost of the fitting with the purchase of a club. So, just make sure to book your fitting by December 25th, and complete that fitting by January 21st. Again, that's code Egg, all one word. All right, let's get to my interview with Chris Millard. All right, I'm here with Chris Millard. Chris, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Great to be with you, Garrett. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's set the scene a little bit here. We're going to get into the specifics of National Golf Links and C.B. McDonald's story but I want to set the scene for people and give them a sense of what the state of American golf architecture was before national was built. How how would you sum that up? How would you describe that?
1: Well, that's an important question because that's uh McDonald saw the bereft state of American golf course architecture in the 1890s. And that's why he did what he did. But to, to sum it up in a word the condition of american golf course architecture in the 1890s was primitive i mean it was really things were very flat most places didn't have the resources or even the intuition to move earth in any way and the inclination therefore is to build golf courses that are on easily managed plots of land so things were golf was played in fields fairways were essentially massive, long rectangles. Bunkers would kind of just go geometrically across the fairway or into the fairway. Greens, you know, it's funny now, most greens have kind of a rounded attitude. Mm -hmm. Back then, everything was flat and most of them were square. And it was an extremely kind of boring, repetitive, geometric exercise. There There was no art. And McDonald's had spent so much of his time, he was really introduced to golf while studying as a young man, a 16, 17-year-old at St. Andrews, University of St. Andrews. And he saw, he was introduced to golf over there. He didn't know a thing about, I'm I'm probably jumping ahead a little too much, but he didn't know anything about golf until he got to St. Andrews as a 16-year-old. Was introduced to the game, the first day he ever saw golf, he thought, wow, this is terrible. What a lousy game. He compared it to something as boring as tiddlywinks. And then a few days into his stay, he kind of, his grandfather got him a set of clubs, got him acclimated at the old course. And he saw the grandeur of the golf course architecture over there. And of course, a lot of that was driven by nature. So he comes back to an America that was largely bereft of golf. Certainly Chicago, where he lived, was entirely bereft of golf. And he thought, you know, if if golf is going to have a chance in America, it's got to have that same style, the same feel and challenge and natural influences that I just saw in my years in Scotland. And he was cocky enough and arrogant enough to say, I am going to design a golf course that will not only please me and my friends, but it will be the paradigm for all future golf course architecture in America and give America its, its actual, its, its rightful game, as opposed to this rectangular thing that was beginning. And um, he did it. That's the beauty of McDonald. Yeah, he was arrogant, he was prickly but he did exactly what he set out to do he gave us the dna for american golf
0: where did mcdonald come from in the world what was his kind of social status uh, location that kind of stuff
1: you know a lot of people uh, a lot of people assume because he was um so definitively important in the formation of american golf people assume he was american he was actually born in canada and um he was raised in chicago And in the, his actual birth date, we make a point of it in the book, um, his actual birth date is in dispute. There are several indications he was born in 1855. There are several 1857. Um, I went with the one that I found most often. I went with 55 because that's the one that most people have used, but even in some of the family's own documents, they have 1857. So it's up for dispute. Um, When he was 16, his father decided the best thing for young Charlie would be to go to St. Andrews and get educated at the University of St. Andrews and live with the grandfather, who was a professor at the University of St. Andrews. And um, like I said, McDonald had no exposure to golf before he went there. And of course, he finds himself in golf heaven. And he, after literally just a couple of days of exposure, he fell hard. I mean, a lot of people love golf. I don't know if anyone's fallen as hard and as fast as CB McDonald did.
0: What was his personality like? You've given some indications of that so far, but, but you know, what do we know about what he was like as, as a guy?
1: He was confident beyond compare. He was also, you know, take confidence one step further. He was arrogant. Um, he knew he was right. And you know what? The thing is, he often was. That's that's the funny thing. I guess it's not bragging if you deliver. And he was right on so many things. Um, and I'll, a little aside, I'm, I'm backing that up. He was concerned when he came back to America that somehow golf course, that golf itself, both its courses, And its rules would be Americanized. And he was concerned about that. He didn't want that to happen. He knew that if that happened, we'd have a lesser game than the one he had seen over in Scotland. So he became sort of a um, a very prickly defender of the rules as the game was played in Scotland at the time. Uh, on implements and on the golf courses themselves on, you know, what a golf course should look like. That's a, that's a big, you have to have a pretty big ego to think that you can be the guy who does all this for the future, for the posterity of golf in America. He did all the above. Um, he was beloved. His, he had, in fact, there's a section in the book where we talk about his death and the club wrote its own, the club essentially wrote a letter to the members mourning the death of their founder. And they talk about what he was, that he was an autocrat, that he was, um, he was arrogant. He was argumentative. um, He was persuasive. And then they say, but above all these things, he was a friend. And He had this incredible ability to uh, aggravate and irritate people, but those same people never turned their back on him. They were still attracted to him. So he had this amazing charisma and power and confidence that he never lost in in his whole life. He was a, um, and I make the point, he not only had all these people at national and all throughout all strata of golf all over the world among his friends, Um the game really never had a better friend with without CB McDonald golf in America does not exist as we know it today. It may have ultimately, we may have ultimately gotten there, but he saved us a lot of headaches and a lot of lousy golf courses along the way.
0: He became a very good player too. Although he took up the game, you know, a little bit later than a lot of say prodigies uh, would he ended up becoming a very expert player. What, what were some of the highlights of his That's playing exactly,
1: career? You're exactly right. He became a good player very quickly and he was exposed. You know, I, I conjecture. I, I don't even know if i make this conjecture in the book, but I believe the first lesson he ever took in golf was from old Tom Morris. And he was very close with young Tom. They were very good friends. And by the end of McDonald's stay in St. Andrews, um, he was contending with that kind of crowd, with young Tom and the other young bucks that were coming up around Scotland at that time. And there was, you know, by the time he was probably in his mid 20s, he could give anyone in the world a good game. He was that good. And of course, as I'm sure you know, you know, he won the first United States Amateur Championship, um, had a a couple other close finishes. In fact, you know, his some of his close finishes that came before his win really were the impetus for the creation of the USGA. Um, You know, we've to this point, we've really only talked about the game and golf course architecture. We haven't talked about Charlie or CB as a as an administrator. Uh, the legacy that he left in the creation of the USGA. There's there's a lot of evidence that uh, you know in the early days of golf in America, when there was no USGA, golf was competitive. Golf was a free for all. Anybody could declare them. You know, you could you could have started a tournament in um, eighteen ninety five or eighteen ninety four, three maybe, and you could have just declared this. Hey, this is the national championship. And I could have done the same thing the next day, and everybody could have had a national championship. And it was McDonald, who kind of, after having, by the way, lost two so-called national championships
0: right. prior <laughs> to
1: the establishment of the USGA. This is the part
0: of the story I've heard. I've heard before. Uh, some yeah. people characterize it as almost like he he uh, he refused to call it the official national championship. Right. Until yeah, he uh, a lot of people
1: it. think he kind of sour graped his way into the creation <laughs> of the USGA. You know, he would. He lost two of these events, and kind of his sense afterwards was you know these events were neither national <laughs> right. nor championships yes and if you're going to ever declare someone a national champion, it's got to be on a you know proper championship golf course, and it's got to be properly administered uh, with the with rules in fact, in one of the early ones that he lost that frustrated him so much, um, uh, one guy showed up and played. With a pool cue I mean that's how <laughs> silly that that that's and so it was McDonald almost on his own shoulders who said you know what we, we got to do something better than that we have to be like this thing they have over in Scotland called the RNA and um, <clears throat> he became a um, a real evangelist for the rules of golf that's another way in which he wanted to spare the U.S. from any cleavage with the game as he saw in Scotland. Um, he knew that the rules had to be the same because if if, Amer- if if we in America happened to somehow Americanize our rules, we would lose some of the discipline that um, that is infused in the rules as written overseas. So he was a very good player. In fact, he got so good before he came home, he got so good that the magazines and the newspapers that would cover the achievements of a guy like young Tom Morris, wherever he would go and play, you know, there'd always be a little paragraph, young Tom played here today. They began to cover McDonald in the same fashion. So that gives you a sense of how how good he was. Um, And of course, winning the first USM. And a quick, here's a quick aside on winning the first USM. When I was writing the history of the National, those of you, have you ever played the National? I haven't, no. Okay. Well, for, for those of your listeners who have, they, they'll know the smoking room. It's it's right off the bar. Um, I was sitting in there with another guy who was doing some historical work at the National, and I'm sitting on a couch. And it, basically, I part of my job was to kind of take in everything that was on the walls, and i take notes and all that. And I look down, and there's like a little medal about the size of a quarter, maybe a half dollar sitting on the end table. And I looked a little more closely and I picked it up and I said, wow, does that say 1895 on it? And it was like a gold medal. And I realized it was C.B. McDonald's medal for winning the first U.S. amateur, the very first Pete prize ever awarded by the USGA, just sitting on an end table. I mean, the place Casual. is dripping with history that like that, something like that would just be sitting there.
0: Well, CB McDonald is such a, a fascinating subject in himself. You know, he's 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 as charismatic uh in in death as he was in life, right? It's it's hard not to just keep discussing him. But of course our focus is uh national golf links. And so we'll skip over some interesting parts of McDonald's life to 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 hasten to the national. Let's get into some of his ideas about golf architecture. My understanding is that as his playing career declined, he became more and more keenly interested in architecture. And one of his key inspirations was actually a series of articles in Golf Illustrated. This series of articles I regard as as one of the most important moments, one of the most important artifacts in golf architecture history. But people, I don't think, generally know a lot about it. So could you tell me about this discussion that happened in the pages of golf illustrated and what uh mcdonald took away from it
1: that was the article written by horace hutchinson where he kind of asked the the subscribers and the readers of golf illustrated which was widely read then across the uk and even in the united states what are the best holes out there i mean it was almost like a you you could almost imagine this happening on your blog or a webcast yeah. or a, a radio show right now. Hey, guys, let's talk today about the best holes out there.
0: It's a very common thing to do now. It's it's very familiar exactly right. to those of us who love golf and love golf architecture. Right. It's very but
1: related.
0: as far as I know, this was the first time anybody had thought to discuss such a thing.
1: Right. Exactly right. And he, he poses this question to this universe of, of passionate golfers and knowledgeable, largely knowledgeable people. And um, the answers come flooding in. And McDonald reads this article and says, it says you know, let me take a step back. At that moment, when that, when that article came out, golf in the UK was being played against land that had been shaped by nature. And then golfing men came onto it and played their game. McDonald read this list in the the article and said, wait a minute, I see this list of golf holes, and by the way, I agree with all of them, and I might even have some other uh, additions that I would add to this list, but I wonder if you look at this list and you think about the elements that form some of the holes they're talking about, and we'll maybe talk about the Redan at North Berwick, That that was on the list. McDonald says to himself, yeah, these are great holes. These are the holes that deserve to be singled out as great. But I wonder if they can be duplicated. I wonder if you could take their essence or some of their features, a feature here, a bunker there, a green shape there. And I wonder if you could, rather than encountering a hole like this through the chance of nature, if you could actually bring intentionality to golf course architecture and say i'm going to actually start from scratch and create things like this now, that's a that's a huge leap and the funny thing is that when he started to do that and i've i've just i've i've just passed about 20 years i just went about 20 years when he started to actually implement his idea at the national the Originators, the the guys over in the UK were kind of laughing at him. You know, they had this disdainful, ugly American kind of attitude like, hey, good luck trying to capture the spirit and the essence and the beauty of these holes on your lowly American simile. And I mean, he pulled it off in spades, but he had hurdles, you know. The, the the soil at National, the actual ground he was working with, was violently hilly. It had never been surveyed because it was essentially impassable. There was so much thick, prickly brush that people were familiar with the land, but who, who was ever going to bother with that land? No one. Until MacDonald kind of had the vision. Um, what MacDonald didn't realize is that under when he finally cleared all of that brush and was left kind of with the naked land, how Sandy, he didn't, he, he knew he wanted Sandy soil, which is why essentially why he moved from Chicago to New York eventually. Mm -hmm. Cause that was, he, he felt like it was going to be in Long Island or in new England where he was going to find that Sandy soil. And that's really what brought him. I mean, he did get a job with a R.H. and company in New York, But I think he went east precisely because he was on the hunt for the perfect sandy soil. And what he didn't realize is this gift of very sandy soil was also extremely difficult to grow grass on. And I think it was, there are two monumental achievements that McDonald pulled off at National. One is just getting that golf course built with the lack of technology they had at that time. And the other is overcoming, figuring out, and having the emotional stamina and the patience and the determination to figure out how to grow grass. Because for a year and a half or two years, well after when he had kind of hoped to be open and running, he had bare sand. And he would, it was an embarrassment. And the Brits were laughing at him just as they... When he sort of suggested to the world, I'm going to transplant these coals into the an um, American an intentional golf course in America, they laughed and they couldn't help but laugh even more when he couldn't grow grass and they figured, yeah, he's revealed himself to be the ugly American, but he became a student of seed. He became a student of the dirt itself and he ultimately figured it out. He spent a fortune back then. You know, right now, if you were going to go order a ton of seed, that seed would be 100% exactly the seed you want. Back then, seeds were intermingled. You might have ordered, you know, 500 pounds of a certain seed. There were probably 50 or 100 pounds in there of of other seeds. It just wasn't that well organized. And he didn't know that. He also didn't know that, even though Long Island seems to be sort of on the same longitude or latitude, I forget which one. It seems to equate to England and Scotland, kind of. It really doesn't. It's got a, it's got a very different climate, different humidity, and the the soils in Scotland are far more akin to the soils up like where Bandon Dunes is, and that's a very different climate than the New York metro area. And so he finally figured that out. And once he figured all that out and he was able to really grow the grass the way he wanted, um, the, the rest was history. And uh, one of his friends and frequent um, sort of dinner companions and visitor to the national was a guy named George Crump, who was also trying to build a golf course, Pine Valley in extremely sandy soil. And he came to McDonald and basically said, "How do you do this?" And McDonald basically showed him, I've, "I've been down a long, hard road. I'll tell you how to do it." And uh, he saved Crump a hell of a lot of time at Pine Valley.
0: They still had a hard time at Pine Valley, though. That Mary. was, uh, and it, it's interesting that these two kind of uh, you know giant accomplishments of American golf architecture in National and Pine Valley. These are kind of the two pillars of of that period of. Of golf architecture in America, both had a a pretty similar problem when right. it came to actually getting grass on the golf course. Now, I'd like to take a few steps back here. Uh, you know, we've we've gotten to the point where the course is uh, has been built and is being grassed, but I'd like to go back to, you know, how how it came about, how it became possible to build this course and some of the architectural ideas that went into it. So, um, let's talk for a minute about. Ideal holes coming from this this uh, discussion that happened in the pages of Golf Illustrated, where where something in McDonald's brain kind of clicked and said, OK, these are the greatest holes. How can we get something like this in America? Well, we can adapt some of these ideas or maybe we can replicate certain holes. Yep. So h- how did he research his ideal holes. What, what did he do to kind of find out about them?
1: That's a great question. He, he set up like a war room in his office (laughs) in New York city.
0: All of this is totally incredible by the way. Like the, the, the way that he attacked all these problems is just like, uh, it's it's amazing what it he did so sorry mean. sorry to interrupt, but it just no, strikes no, no. me like this guy I, was an absolute psycho he just he he took everything he did with this project so seriously and yes. and just went after it
1: and he would not he just wouldn't be denied and this is a guy by the way, who had you know a big job um he had a lot of other responsibilities he had two children, and um you know he'd made this his life's work and it worked that's the amazing thing about it is that every corner every time he challenged himself to take on something that was going to change the game he did it yeah so so he set up his
0: war room for researching the war room the in holes. the city
1: yeah. he he himself between the time that that article came out and the time that the National, they actually started buying the land for the National, around 1906 is when they started buying the land for the National. So in the, that first five, five six years of the, of the 1900s, he spent a good chunk of those first three or four of those years overseas, literally with his eyes, playing golf, but surveying holes and, and thinking to himself, you know that principle's nose. That that's a feature I love. I'm. I, I'd like to incorporate that somewhere. At the same time, while he was doing his own research, he had his knowledgeable pals, guys mostly in Scotland, sending to his office um, rudimentary photography. It, it's amazing. There are some like pictures that were sent to C. B. McDonald with letters that are in the National's archives. There are also sketches from some of his more artistic friends on like graph paper that kind of sketch out. They'll say, you know, here's here's what the road hole green looks like, you know, on and it'll it'll be you know um, one quarter inch to one foot scale, and there's piles of this stuff hanging around the national. So. what McDonald did is he accumulated all these comments and insights from all his friends and from all his own research. He goes back to the war room. He then commences the search for Sandy land. He really looked up and down the East coast. I mean, essentially from Jersey to the Cape up there, he scoured. He actually approached Shinnecock. He was a member at Shinnecock. He went to Shinnecock and said, I mean, you want to talk about cocky. He went to Shinnecock and said, I'd like to buy the club to build a proper golf course.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because they they had a golf course. It's not the golf course that people uh, know today. Of course, that's a William Flynn golf course that was built later at the time. Shinnecock had a more uh, rudimentary kind of golf course on that spectacular piece of land that we're all familiar with now.
1: Exactly right. So he goes and they said, well, gee, uh, thanks for thanks for your offer. But no, Thanks. (laughs) And it's around that time he looked, there were several that we detail in the book. There's a few other properties in the general area that he looked at, um, then ultimately settles on the property that he, that he acquired. And I believe this is how things unfolded. He first traveled that land on horseback because it was completely inaccessible on by, by two feet. He and HJ Wiggum, and that name may ring a bell to some of your uh, golf historian listeners um, he was also a great amateur golfer in the late 1800s early 1900s won a couple the Ams, I believe and um, ultimately became CB McDonald's son-in-law um, but he brought Wiggum out with him to kind of get us just an overall impression what do you what do we think if we could clear this land what have we got and they both agreed. This is it. This is the land we're going to buy. Well, the land had never been surveyed. And there was a surveyor working for the village of Southampton on the city payroll, who as Southampton at this time in the late, uh, in the early 1900s, is kind of growing a little bit as a summer community. And so the roads have to be improved and modernized. And the surveyor of the streets was this guy named Seth Rayner. And I believe that, well, what I know is that McDonald asked Rayner, hey, you're a surveyor by training. He went to Princeton to study it. Um, Maybe you could come and help me survey this land. I kind of need to know what I'm dealing with here. And he was so impressed with Rayner that he ultimately hired Rayner to basically... The, way, the what he said to Rainer was, OK, I've got this principal's nose bunker and I even have the dimensions of it because my friend over in Scotland drew a little chart of it. He told me how high it is and how deep it is. How do I implement that into this land? And that was Rainer's job. That's what Rainer did. In fact, we found the invoice in the researching this book. Rainer was paid one hundred fifty five dollars for his work at National Golf Links. And he spent, if you look at his itemized invoice for the days he worked there, essentially he was, the, the most common work he did was measuring and determining bunker heights. How deep should, you know, because where the principal's nose bunker is now is very different topography than the McDonald interpretation of the principal's nose, which is going to be on number eight. Um, So it was Rainer's job to transplant that detail, that that feature, onto this new land and make it function with this new land. So that is how Rainer got involved. Um, Ironically enough, Rainer never was a golfer. And at a certain point in his career, Rainer actually... Um, made an intentional decision that he would never play golf. He felt like he was having such success in 1915 to 1925, et cetera, that he was so good and in such demand, he felt that if he took up the game, it would only maybe diminish his instincts. And he'd start looking at a whole design as a player rather than as a golf course architect. And so, amazingly enough, he never played the game.
0: Our next partner for this episode is AG1. You know, I've struggled for a long time to get into a healthy routine. And if you're a longtime listener, you might know that I've been drinking AG1 for most of this year. When I started drinking AG1 daily, I definitely noticed a difference in my general nutritional level. It gave me a good way to start the day, get off on the right foot, and know that I had so much of what I needed covered. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. My favorite part of AG1 is just how easy it is to work it into your day to day. You know, my problem in the past with diets and various nutritional schemes is that I just haven't been able to stick with them because they've been complex or unpleasant. With AG1, that's totally different. You know, you you wake up in the morning, or at least I do, I wake up in the morning, and I get a little bit of water, I add some AG1 to it, I drink it, and I get an immediate boost. I I immediately feel a sense of well-being. And that has been really easy to stick to every single day. So that's why AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why they've been a partner for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash the fried egg. That's drinkag1.com slash the fried egg. What did Rainer end up meaning to CB McDonald's architecture at the oh. courses, the few courses where they work together? Because, of course, Rainer went on to build a zillion golf courses under his own name. He built a couple with McDonald that, uh, of yes. course, are legendary. Um, yes. what did he? What did he mean to to those courses?
1: I think he meant everything. I I think um, on the courses where they work together, I I don't think Rainer gets enough credit for how heavily CB leaned on him. Um, they were also two fascinatingly very different people. McDonald was a boisterous and cantankerous and kind of arrogant and cranky. And uh, Rainer was very quiet, studious, polite, calm. I interviewed Rainer's uh, grandniece. She's still, well, I wrote this book, came out in 2015, I think. So at that time, his grandniece was living in Southampton. And she said she remembered her mother talking about how occasionally Rainer and his family would go off to this little cabin in the middle of nowhere, miles and miles away from the national, because he knew that McDonald couldn't get to him there. That He could, <laughs> have, just, that he could have a little bit. <laughs> he of had peace. some peace and quiet. Right. <laughs> and they, and the grandniece talked about how, you know, she would see, uh, you know, her great uncle, I guess that's what it was. Um, you could see him, the burden would come off his shoulder as they would just sit by a fire and, you know, chat. And that's all Rainer really wanted. Um, so, and the other thing is in the book, there's this discussion where uh, this this illustrates well what McDonald thought of Rainer. In the 1920s or 30s, you know, McDonald does... Um, Chicago Golf Club in like 1894 somewhere around there. I know he does the you know the, the World Fair comes to Chicago and he lays out a few holes. That's fun. Then they go to uh, that Lake Forest. Then they go to Belmont and they do they do nine and then they later on add another nine and that's the first 18 hole golf course in the West. Then years later. Chicago Golf Club reaches out to McDonald and says, "Hey, we're thinking about having Seth Raynor come in and kind of modernize what what you built all those years ago. Would that be okay with you?" And McDonald writes back that, um, "Yes, it would be okay with me, but under one condition, and that condition is that you do everything he says." (laughs) Now, for McDonald to defer to someone, we we've talked about what a what a towering ego he had. For him to defer to someone with that kind of respect, you know one condition you do everything he says that's all you need to know about what Mcdonald thought of Rayner's understanding of golf course architecture
0: and he's very tender about Rayner in his in his writings uh, of course, uh, Seth Rayner ended up dying in nineteen twenty five or nineteen twenty six too young and years old. Right. And uh, and MacDonald was clearly affected by that and and wrote about it. And so their friendship was clearly very strong, even though they were very, very different people. And MacDonald could be a uh, a difficult person, whereas Rainer, by all indications, was the definition of not a difficult person.
1: Um, And and by the way, to put to put a somewhat romantic or poetic exclamation point on all that, um, they are buried feet from one another in the Southampton Cemetery.
0: I didn't know That, that. That's incredible. Wow. Okay. So getting back to National Golf Links, of course, you had these two enormously talented men, along with some other talented companions, laying this course out, trying to build the great American golf course, the first truly great American golf course. And when I say that, by the way, I want to mention, you know, the way we've characterized this, uh, the history of American golf architecture to this point is very general. There were some outstanding courses yep. in America before National Golf Links. It's not yep. like it was a complete wasteland. Myopia Hunt Club, Garden City are often mentioned as Absolutely. among the best courses of the pre-national era, and those are still incredible golf courses. And, and so, you know, we, we don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here. National was clearly on a different level, however, and it wasn't uh, important to, to uh, you know, kind of changing the history of golf architecture. you exactly right. One thing about it that it had that previous golf courses in America didn't have was funding, (laughs) like big time funding, big money to allow this piece of land, which was in some ways well suited to golf, but in other ways was a little bit difficult and required some work that allowed this piece of land to be turned into an excellent golf course that money needed to be had for that to happen. And so how did McDonald's find this money and and put together the funding for this project. Well,
1: given given his um his career in the financial world, um he was connected to a lot of the wealthier people in New York. It it is it is actually a kind of amazing to see how quickly a guy who was born in Canada, raised in Chicago, educated in Scotland, and then ultimately moved to New York when he was uh, 45, scaled the social ladder in New York City. It's incredible. Um, He was a very – New York at that time, even frankly, even still today, but at that time, it was a very clubby place. Everybody had a club. You had – a club you belonged to where you went to lunch at that club. Then you had a dinner club. Then you had a club where you danced. Then you had a club where you played golf. You had a club where you would stay overnight in the city if you lived in Connecticut. And McDonald had this massive collection of clubs. And I think those were for him, the breeding ground of these social slash financial relationships. This is where he got to know people. You know, he didn't go to Harvard. He didn't go to Yale. He didn't, he didn't go to Princeton. But at these clubs, he was hobnobbing with everybody who did. And he got to know a lot of kind of brand name people in New York with a lot of money. And when he set out to do the National, he looked for 60 men, each of whom could put up a thousand bucks. So we're talking about seventy thousand dollars in nineteen oh five ish money that's a lot of money and um you're right the the project was much harder than Mcdonald originally envisioned um particularly that that grass growing escapade um and it's it's interesting you know i i never really thought about this but if McDonald had tried to do that golf course without a lot of moneyed people behind him, I think it probably would have been a disaster. Because with that money also came patience. Um, he had the time to solve the grass crisis because he had guys who had money. So I think you're right. the The money was a huge part of what we ultimately got in, in the national.
0: Now, when he went to this piece of land with this funding behind him he could do a number of things right he could build some holes he he could really move some earth around he could you know bend the piece of land to his will in a way that previous american golf architects Really couldn't, and really most previous British architects couldn't either. There, there was some building, ambitious building happening around London. Uh, yeah, like and Willie at the Park same Jr. Time, was kind of Park like Willie Park Jr. You know? Yeah, Sunningdale, uh, Harry Colton, and all of them were, were starting to do some of these things, but National <laughs> seems to to take that to uh, a, a new place. Um, so were there holes that mcdonald simply found in the land? At National Golf Links, and and what what were those?
1: I would say the uh, the best example of that, by far, is the Cape, the Cape Hole that he designed, number fourteen at National. Now, if anyone listening has ever played the National, there's a road you take that kind of takes you towards Peconic Bay. That that's the road that's going to lead you to the National. And to, at, today, as you're going down that road, there's kind of a rusty old gate, beautiful wrought iron gate that's kind of like neglected. And you you drive by that and then you turn into the McDonald Gate, the beautiful gate they now have. And you come, go up the hill to this beautiful house. Back in the day, that gate was the entrance. The first gate you see on your left was the main entrance to the club. And they did a deal. National Golf Links did a deal with the city of the village of Southampton after McDonald had uh, laid out the golf course, where the 14th hole is now, imagine you're, you're looking at the green. The original 14th hole had water a little bit in front of the green, all the way around the right side of the green and all the way around the back of the green it was almost an early island green not not quite all four sides but three sides and that right side went all the way out into bullshead bay that was tidal water well the national golf links wanted to they had a, there was a road that actually went right through their property and so they made a swap national golf Links said hey look village uh, you you give us this road that goes through the property, which is now basically the, the road they use for tractors and mowers and that kind of stuff. Um, and we will help you build a road that goes to the beach, which is and now that's where their entrance is. So what happened effectively was that tidal water that used to come up on that right side of number 14, that is now bridged by a road. And that took away, it's now just kind of sandy low spot that goes to the road. And then right of the road is Bullshead Bay. Um, so when it was essentially surrounded on three sides by water, it was purely McDonald's vision. This concept of how much of this water do you want to take on was a radical new concept. Even M- McDonald even writes that he, he there was nothing like it. And of course when you think now about Cape Holes and the How much do you want to bite off shots in in golf around the world today it's one of the great one of the great additions to the golf architecture canon everybody loves it one of those holes how much can you chew on this hole and so the Cape I think clearly that was conceived of and and created entirely out of McDonald's head and probably is his greatest Addition, his singular addition to the golf canon. Um, so that's my best example of how he sort of did his own thing there too, um, mm-hmm. as as well as kind of take other concepts and features and work them in. Right.
0: Well, if you were to choose another hole at the national that you think uh, represents the the brilliance of McDonald's design, and and maybe this one incorporates elements of these model holes that that McDonald had studied and and wanted to adapt.
1: A great example is number seven. And, you know, like a lot of great old clubs, the club, the the holes have a name, you know, a a nickname. And number seven is the road hole. And if you went to national today and you played number seven, and I said to you, as we're playing the hole, I would say to you, hey, Garrett, what hole do you think this is kind of modeled after? You'd go, "I, I don't know. And then if we played it again and I said this hole is modeled after the road hole, the light would go on in your head and you go, oh, my God, this is an unbelievably good interpretation, not copy of the road hole. So McDonald, for instance, one of the great features of that road hole is, you know, how close the road runs to that back right of the green over at the old course. Well, there is no road To the back right of number seven at national but he has this a stretch of ever deepening bunkers that is right where the road would be and of course it wouldn't occur to you necessarily the first time you played that until someone says yeah he modeled that that's that would be the equivalent of the road on the road hole and little features like that like Bunkering where the um, where the um, old drying shed or the train shed would be on on the road hole. You know, he's got bunkers in there to give you a sense of you have to you have to hit over those bunkers to get to the dream spot on the fairway. Um, So he did a lot of things like that where he took the general concept and then adapted it to what he had.
0: All right. So we get to the point now where. The National has been designed and built. You've already told us about the difficulties that McDonald had in seeding the greens and how he sort of had to invent modern agronomy, basically, in order to solve that problem. Yeah. And and ultimately, he did a great deal of research and uh, came to a kind of solution that produced pretty good results, I believe. And 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 we can talk about that but let's get to opening day. When the course first opened, what did the people who played it think of it?
1: Well, McDonald, we've, we've had a lot of um, descriptors of what, what McDonald was, you know, he was arrogant. He was cocky. uh, He was also a showman, a consummate showman. And he had the instincts of a boxing promoter. And, he wanted his opening to be, you know, worthy of his accomplishment. So he opened the golf course. Harold Hilton wins the 1911 U.S. Amateur at Appawamus, which is in Westchester County, which is across Long Island Sound from the National. And it might be a little bothersome. So what he wanted to do was have these, all these great players who were in town roughly in town, in in the general New York area, playing in the USM. wouldn't it be great if I hosted my opening while these guys were all here so they could come over and, and be part of it? The only problem is going from Westchester all the way through Manhattan and all the way out to Southampton was a tough journey in those days. So he got a, with the instincts of a promoter, he got a great idea. He had a member uh, and a friend named C. Ledyard Blair, who had a yacht, a sailing yacht called the Diana, which was the envy of sailors all over the country. Highly regarded as the most beautiful sailboat extant. So McDonald figures, I got an idea. Why don't we have him sail the Diana over to Westchester County, where the guys are wrapping it up at Paloma's, and we'll get all these big name guys, the Harold Hiltons of the world, to get on the Diana and we'll sail them over to the shores of the National. And I mean, they'll make an, a triumphant entry. That'll get attention alone that they were sailing over on the Diana. And then they'll go play the, the National for opening day. And so that that's how, that's how and when he actually opened the golf course in September of 1911. And um, I believe it. they had kind of an informal little tournament. And Harold, it couldn't get better than Harold Hilton winning. And Mm -hmm. so Harold Hilton followed his U.S. amateur win with winning this event. So it was a perfect, uh, you know, perfect way to open things up.
0: What were some of the early reactions to the golf course? What did people say about it?
1: You know, McDonald, again, another descriptor that I haven't really used is McDonald, And in addition to all the things we've said, he was also uh, an unbelievably – detailed publicity manager. He hired a clipping service. I didn't even know they had clipping services in like 1910, 1911, 1912. But he hired a clipping service to send him anything, anywhere that was ever written about the National. And he had great relationships with uh, golf journalists. And he was not afraid to use those relationships. You know, he would... He would sit down and like a, like a CEO, he had a great way of getting his words into the journalist's head. And then the journalist would literally spit those words out. Like there are things that you read. If you read his biography, for lack of a better term, the book he wrote called Scotland's Gift Golf. If you read that book and you learn about what McDonald felt about architecture and his golf course, The National, And then you go and you read these clips. So, you know, a lot of these clips are in the archives at the National. Word Phrases and words that he uses in his book show up routinely in the newspaper articles. And today, a CEO of a company would love to have that kind of persuasiveness where he could get what he wants in the newspapers. McDonald had that gift. That's one of the things I always marvel at is how he handled um, the back end of his golf course too not only getting the land, not only getting Rainer and not only getting these features and holes and but actually the back end of promoting and taking care of the image of National Golf Links, which he did for the rest of his life. Um, so anyway, I, I think I, I lost my train of thought there, but I, I've always been amazed at his ability to control. Oh, you were asking about what did what did people have to say about it?
0: It sounds like what people had to say about it was what McDonald had to say about it.
1: (laughs) That's you, you, you've said it exactly right. And I don't know if he was, um, if he intimidated them. I don't know if they just wanted to be his friend, but these are legitimate writers, you know, like the Bernard Darwin's of the world, Henry Leach back then, Henry Leach. uh, There's a sidebar in the book of Henry Leach, having heard so much about the national, that he took the train out from New York and then walked to the national. And he tells us it's in, it's in the sidebar in the book where he had heard so much he walked. And at the end of his little piece that he writes about, he says, and worth the walk. So to a man, it was highly praised. I, I don't think I've ever seen a negative comment from even from, from people like Darwin Leach early New York Times, all the New York Times, uh, New York Herald, all the local papers. He had command. It's almost like he had command over them. But they were right, too. It was was the ideal golf course.
0: I think it was either Darwin or Horace Hutchinson who said something to the effect of, I'm not going to come out and say that it's the best golf course in the world. But if someone were to say that... (laughs) Exactly <laughs> then right. You wouldn't I, I wouldn't off. look askance at them. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's Darwin. Yeah, exactly right. That now, was Darwin.
1: Another, and by the uh, way, you mentioned, you mentioned Hutchison, right. Uh, McDonald, you know, McDonald did not uh, up to the time where he designed the national, he really hadn't done a lot of golf course architecture. I mean, he did the, the, the variations on a theme with Chicago golf club, you know, the Lake forest and the Belmont. Um, and, he hadn't d- executed a lot of golf course architecture. He would played a lot. He'd studied a lot, but he hadn't executed a lot. Um, and he asked Hutchison one time, you know, I struggle a little bit with greens, which, with, with designing a green. How, do, how should I think about this? And Hutchison said to him, take a handful of little stones and drop them. And he goes, however they fall, however nature determines that they should come to rest on the ground, the, that's how your humps and bumps in the green should look. And if you look at, you know, when you play the national and you have that in your head, you can see it. You can see where McDonald took that advice and you can see these humps that are exceedingly natural, but clear, clearly put there. And that's one of the beauties of how McDonald took input from so many people. You know, it's, they always people always say you know if you design something by committee it's going to be a disaster. In in a way this was designed by committee but it was just all this information fed into McDonald combined with the info we already had and tips like that from Hutchison just dropped the pebbles and
0: all all this advice was filtered through McDonald. I think that's probably the key. If it were designed by committee in the way that people usually mean when they say designed by committee. Everybody would have to come to an agreement on certain things, and maybe some quirks would get flattened out. but this was all mediated through mcdonald and so ultimately it was right. it was his product and and it's interesting that the parallels to Pine Valley because George Crump really did the same thing there, taking in all this advice from the best minds in right. golf architecture at the yeah, time exactly right and uh and and channeling them into this one course, and to an extent you know Mcdonald. Kind of did it did it first at the national. I, I love that story about the pebbles too. The things that uh, golf architects do to try to randomize themselves a little bit, or to to get out of their uh, tendency, the human tendency to organize and to impose order on something. You know that I've I've heard architects say, and uh, Andy Johnson often talks about potato chips modeling greens after <laughs> yes. potato chips. That's another way to kind of randomize things. This pebble story is is another iteration of that kind of uh, way to get out of your own head and right. and produce something that's sort of natural,
1: right? Absolutely right. I agree with that. And by the way, the potato chip analogy is so good. Like yeah. when I think of that. I automatically go through about 30 greens in my head that are obviously potato chips. That look like potato chips. Yeah.
0: Perry Maxwell's greens look so much like potato chips. And yeah, you had to think, uh, you know, somebody was explicitly thinking that when they were designing some of these classic greens that we see from the, I don't even know if there were potato chips back then. Maybe. I don't know. know (laughs) Were there? Um, In any case. They were crisps. Yeah. There you go. Crisps. (laughs) Um, So, you know some of these writers who reacted to the national early on including darwin and hutchinson i believe both of them said something like this they said you know the original holes the unfamiliar holes the 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 ones that came out of mcdonald's own head at national golf links are my favorite ones are, are the best ones and so you know when when i see that i think okay well, first of all, that's that's impressive. But I wonder how McDonald received that feedback, whether he thought to himself, well, maybe they should have all been original. Is there an argument that National Golf Links would have been an even better course wow. if all of now the holes that's... had been original?
1: Wow. So I've been I've been mired in thinking about uh, the National Golf since I got the assignment to write the book, which is 1911, uh, uh, 2011, and the book came out in like 2015 or 16, and so I've been think I thought about it all those years, all day, every day, and I think about it a lot since. I have never thought about that question. It's a hell of an idea, you know. <laughs> imagine if on that piece of land he had just taken his own ideas and put them in the land. What would we have? right
0: it's a little bit it feels almost a little bit blasphemous to, to think about it in that way right but, I mean part of this part of the impetus behind this question for me, why I'm thinking about it, is that you know before this kind of renaissance in appreciation of c b. Mcdonald and Seth Rayner that I would say we're currently experiencing and have been experiencing for the past ten fifteen years before that, I think the common perception of Macdonald and Rayner was that they were kind of these transitional figures in American golf architecture, that they weren't quite fully formed in some way, that they were the people who allowed the Alistair Mackenzies and the George Thomases, the Perry Maxwell's, the William Flynn's of the later period of the American golden age of golf architecture to be truly original. They were the ones who kind of, you know, made the transition from the Victorian period to the golden age happen, but they themselves weren't truly high golden age architects because they were still reliant on those old models. I think, I think that's, that's kind of the argument that was there. And I think that people think about it differently now, but this thought experiment about would the national be better if it were 100% original, to me, relates to that overall debate about whether McDonald and Rayner were truly like fully formed. Well, great here's a couple. Decks.
1: Here's a couple thoughts on that. Yeah. One is the holes that he did interpret. You know, we call them the template holes. That's a kind of a demeaning name because that almost sounds like they just took the exact same thing and just did it time after time. Right. And if so you they just hit copy
0: and paste, and you know that there was no no art to it, it was just like yeah, replicas.
1: And the the truth of the matter is, if you look at a plateau green at National and a plateau green at um, pick the uh, you know the one out in Chicago um, Shore Acres, you know if you if you look at the Country Club of Fairfield and Yale, and you look at the um, you know pick your pick your template hole, they're different and they're they are suited to each place. So it's not just replication. And that was one of the knocks on Rainer. A lot of people will say, "Hey, what was Rainer except a guy who kept using, you know, this feature and that feature?" And to which I say, "You know, what was Frank Lloyd Wright other than a guy who kept using walls and roofs?" I mean, that you you only have so many things you can work with and Nobody ever worked with them better than Rayner and McDonald, or McDonald and Rainer. Um, You know, you're, you're going to have fair, you're going to have T's, fairways, hazards, and a green. That's pretty much, it's like a, you're going to have a floor, you're going to have windows, you're going to have walls and a roof. Who does it better? I mean, there's a lot of people who designed houses. Frank Lloyd Wright is set apart. Why? Because of the vision that he had and the way he used those common features. And that's McDonald or Rainer. They had a, a unique vision and they used those features in an artistic and challenging and golf knowledgeable way. Um, I would also say this uh, to your question, to the question you were asking about what if McDonald had done the national entirely on his own? Well, the Cape is one of the landmark golf holes ever designed and that's created purely out of his brain. The Redan at national, is arguably the best Redan in the world. In fact, when the golf course opened, the head professional from North Berwick came over to play it and proclaimed the Redan at National to be better than the Redan at North Berwick.
0: Was this Ben Sayers?
1: Yes, exactly yeah. right.
0: And so. At least that's what McDonald said.
1: Exactly. I've, I've always looked way, at that
0: part of the McDonald's book and been like, wait a minute, did, did Sanders right. actually say that? Or is this just exactly. McDonald's? And who's, and who's going to track down Ben? Exactly. Yeah. One. Who's going to confirm that? I think McDonald did
1: operate like that a little bit.
0: Yeah. I um, mean, I, I, I don't, I don't discount that, that opinion either. Right. The, the, the national Redan looks absolutely amazing. So I could see why, why somebody might, uh, might react that way.
1: It's unreal. Uh, it's, I, it's one of the great holes, uh, you know, their short hole is, the six holes just every hole there is just magnificent. I mean you can't I don't know if there's a better golf course on earth. Um, I to me if if I had one golf course that I could only play for the rest of my life, it would be the national i I would never ever tire of playing that place.
0: Now speaking of the national historically as as a a moment in golf architecture, especially in America, that influenced future moments. What what did the national inject into the bloodstream of American golf architecture? How would you sum that up?
1: Uh I would say it um it gave us a beacon. It, it gave the future of golf something here in America. You didn't have to go to Scotland to see what it should be like. You could now just go to Southampton, and that's the beacon. It was almost like a compass. And, you know, McDonald, amazingly enough, had that in mind. I, I need to I need to build this, not just for my friends, to have a cool place to play golf. It's so that the world, that America will have something to look at. So that for the future of American golf course architecture, they'll know what's good and what's not. And here's here's good. And that's it's amazing. And it turned out to be true. I mean, guys like Gil Hance, um, Ben Crenshaw. I mean, two of the most in-demand golf course architects on earth, their North Star is C.B. McDonald, Seth Rayner, and the National. So he gave us that foundation. He also gave us the sort of like, um, even though he was against or he feared the Americanization of the game, he gave America uh, an, an identity in golf, like – we were a golfing nation because we had the national, we were legit. And in a way he kind of legitimized golf course architecture as an American thing, as well as a Scottish or UK thing. Um, You know, they were all looking down their noses at him and they were giggling, you know, and those, you know, the, the ugly American will never get it done. Who is this Yankee who thinks he can pull this off? You know, um, but when he did, they all kind of had to either shut up or write articles saying, hey, the guy pulled it off and this is incredible. So there's a real American thing there. And this whole, the concept of this American uh, element, this pride, this element of American pride is, it goes throughout McDonald's writing. In fact, the reason he called it the National Golf Links of America was because he wanted the club to be seen as some national enterprise, not as just a little club that, you know, a few guys from one little town played. He had this concept in his head of a national model, and that's why he literally put it in the name, and he was ahead of his time. He, he wrote letters to his friends Early, early on, 1910, 1911, saying, my desire is to make this club as national as possible. And therefore, I hope you'll help me in coming up with names of people from all over the country. And the first, I think the first 11 guys to join the national, the original founders, one of them was from Atlanta. Think about that. In 19- 1910, 1911, Atlanta, Georgia to Southampton, that, that must have seemed like a, a frontier away. But he also, you know, he, he saw St. Andrews as sort of a national club. He saw St. George's as a national club. And that's, that's kind of what inspired him to have this national concept at National Golf Links. That's why it's in the name.
0: Well, Chris, thank you so much for this conversation. Really enjoyed it. There's a lot more to explore here. <laughs> we could go on for another couple of hours. But uh, <laughs> well, you, you call
1: me anytime you want. I am I, happy to talk about it.
0: Oh, uh, thank you. I appreciate it so much. And yeah, thanks for being on the podcast.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Garrett. <laughs>
0: This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced by Matt Ruchus. Thank you, Matt. If you'd like to do us a solid, then go to wherever you're listening to this and give us a rating and review. We have published some podcasts on some controversial topics lately, which means that we've gotten a couple of unhappy people in our reviews. And guess what? We appreciate those, too. If, If you have some criticisms, then feel free to let us know in the reviews. But if you've been somebody who has been enjoying what we're doing, appreciating what we're doing, and you haven't yet reviewed this podcast or given a rating, now is a great time to do that. It really helps us out. It helps us find new listeners for this podcast and helps us keep growing what we're doing here. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Happy holidays. And we'll be back again soon. Thank you.